Hello and welcome to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion, and I'm joined again by executive producer and showrunner David S. Goyer. David, please respect and... Uh, enjoy the piece? And the podcast recording. <laughs> I will. I promise. Uh, Foundation, the official podcast, is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds. Space is a big place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to all the stuff you see on the show. This week, we have a special guest, Leah Harvey, who plays Salvor Harden. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited. This whole season, of course, will be full of cast and crew interviews, so... Uh, stay with us every week throughout the run of the show. This time around, we'll be discussing the second episode of season two, A Glimpse of Darkness, written by Jane Espenson and yourself, David. Let's go to a recap and rundown what happened in this episode. We open with Harry extremely heated at Gale for trapping him. I was conscious the entire time. But circumstances are perilous right now, so they all reach a truce with Gale and Salvor needing to get the ship started. Part of the issue that they're dealing with is there should have been a second uh, foundation coming because there is this string of crises that they know are in the offing. Gale uses her powers to look into the future where she discovers a telepath named the Mule is hell-bent on bringing war and destruction to the galaxy, and the only hope of stopping him is that second foundation, which Gale kind of messed up when she locked Harry away, so they start course towards the planet Ignis, where Gale believes the second foundation will be located. It's almost like someone's calling to us. Can you hear that? On Trantor. Demerzel proposes sending Bel Rios, a former Imperial general, to investigate the Foundation's growth. Day doesn't like it, doesn't like Bell, but uh, Demerzel waits him out and he eventually agrees. How long did you expect my outburst to last? A minute and a quarter. You came in well under. Hmm. Day continues his courtship of Queen Sarath of the Cloud Dominion. Dawn, Dusk, and Day all have dinner with Sarath, who quite cheekily questions the legitimacy of the Empire, which I thought was uh, quite a courageous thing to do over dinner. Empire is shrinking. Empire is healthy. Is it? On the Outer Reach planet of Suena, we meet brothers Constant and Polly, two missionaries spreading the word of Selden and the Foundation. The missionaries have some quite interesting technology in their possession. They also have a bishop's claw named Becky. Constant and Polly are running this kind of Las Vegas magic show uh, in the hopes of convincing the people of Suena of the power of uh, Selden's word, the power of the foundation, and hoping that they adopt the foundation as their kind of quasi-religion. Do you want to hear the good news? About the coming galactic paradise. Their show is cut short when they are called back to Terminus for the second coming of Selden. Now with the vault reopening, everybody is like, I want to be first in line to meet the prophet. Sharp elbows come out. In the end, it is Warden Fount who approaches the vault to speak with Selden. And it seems like it's going great for about 10 seconds until he's lifted in the air and he bursts into flames while screaming, get Hober Mallow. Helpfully... In case the people gathered around the vault were like, wait, what, what, what did he say? Uh, the name is etched there on the surface of the vault, Hobermallow. Who the heck is Hobermallow? Finally, the big reveal. In Gail's vision of the future, she tells Salvor, 
the mule has killed Salvor Harden. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. That is where we close the episode. Wow. <laughs> Once again, an incredibly impressive recap. That was impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Leah, you, you didn't originally audition for Salvor, is that right? That's right. I didn't. I auditioned for Gail originally. I remember uh, sitting in front of David and not quite feeling that I was hitting Gail, but persevering anyway. And somehow I've ended up playing <laughs> Salvor after all of that. I mean, I was watching you. It was clear that you were a remarkable actor and you left. And I was with Lucinda and Natasha, our two casting directors. And they looked at me and said, what do you think? And I said, Salver. And they both said, really? <laughs> Be, uh, just because uh, they obviously brought you in for Gail. And I said, yeah, Salver. <laughs> and go chase her down. And they they chased you down and we brought you back in the room and I said, I know this is going to be really crazy, but do you have an hour? Can you go learn these sides for self or go to a coffee shop or something and then come back in and, and read for the other role? Unfortunately, you, you were game and the rest is history. Yeah. I must say it was it was a surprise to kind of see that other character and go, oh, this feels really good. <laughs> and to be able to come in and, you know, have a good whack at it after an hour of learning the lines. It felt like quite a cool moment. On top of that, we also asked you in that audition that we just sprung on you whether or not you could do it American. So it, like we just yeah. we were just throwing everything we possibly could at poor Aaliyah. Yeah, it was good though, you know. I've read that some of your family are fans of the books. What was their reaction mm. to your being cast as Salvor? Oh, my nan was um, very excited. She's read the books. And my uncles have all read the books and they're asking me lots of questions. And I'm like, dudes, I can't tell you anything. <laughs> it's all a secret, okay? But they were really excited. And, you know, my mum's really supportive. And she, I mean, it's it's one of those jobs that as a young actor, mm -hmm. I think I was 24, maybe, or 25 when yeah. I first got cast in it. I'm 28 now. Uh, you know, as a young actor, it, uh, it it's one of those ones that changes your life a little bit. Yeah. A big bit, actually. So it, it was big news for the whole family and it was a big, um, big thing to celebrate. Plus, your brother was around and he actually has a cameo later on in the season. He does. And that's a, a cute little thing I can keep in my pocket about this season is that my brother joined me. He doesn't look a thing like me. So he was able to be in the scenes. And I managed to wiggle him in and he's, uh, he's, he, you'll see him in a couple of scenes. See if you can spot him. <laughs> well, let's uh, dive into the episode, uh, which, you know, watching this, I, I really felt like the, the overall theme of this was mass messaging. You have these two power centers, you know, the foundation and the empire, and they're at a, these inflection points, but they're presenting very different faces to the people that follow them. Let's start with, with Salvor. Pretty much all the people that she knows are dead at this point. That must be a tremendously unmooring feeling. And here she is, you know, faced with Harry Zeldin, who is screaming. <laughs> now is not the time to air our grievances, Harry. I looked at the math. The plan's gone off course. And why is the plan off course, Gail? I don't know. Don't you dare play the innocent with me, Gail. You know damn well, my numbers were predicated on the creation of a second foundation, remember? Second foundation? Who are you? I'm Salvor Hardin, Gail's daughter. Johnson? You're the daughter. And also, it's interesting because 
as we confirm in this episode, Harry, who seems quite unhinged, says that there are now two Harry Seldons, that there's the one that Salver met in the vault who is not this guy because she makes the assumption that they met mm-hmm. and, and that he knows her. And he says, no, that's a totally different guy. He doesn't know my thoughts and I don't know his. And it was also this lovely kind of intended irony that Gail was supposed to go to Terminus and Gail was supposed to be there when the vault opened and be kind of the resident psychohistorian. She didn't make it there. So Selver ended up doing it in her place. And ironically, Selver has her own relationship with the version of Harry that Gail was supposed to have the relationship with. So there's this sort of trading places element that's going on. It, it must be a lot for Salvor to be dropped in the middle of this hundred plus year argument between Harry and Gail, right? It definitely is. I think she uh, finds herself between a rock and a hard place on a ship that is potentially going to sink in the next five minutes and uh, an argument that seems like uh, it really needs to happen right now. <laughs> for sure, it's very confusing to be seeing this version of Harry and to very quickly understand that it's not the Harry that she knows and that there's something gone on here and it's not okay. (laughs) Uh, But I remember while doing the scene that somebody needed to be focused on the storm. Mm -hmm. So so that was my main kind of thing, was listening, but also, and we've all done this in life, we all listen to these things and go, yeah, but but have you noticed this this thing that's, okay, we can't even, if if this happens, we actually can't argue. So can we just maybe sort this out first? Um, She's very, you know, head on and will try and get the problem solved as soon as possible, uh, especially if it's going to mean that they all die. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think it, after after this uh, scene, she's able to process it all a bit more. And I think we see her process it. But, you know, during the scene, she's just, she's just worried that everyone's going to drown. Also, the idea that Gil and Harry both are very much, they live in kind of the, the environment of their thoughts, right? I mean, they're they're thought-driven. Yeah. And Salver is much more instinctual. She's much more about feelings. She's an empath. And so they tend to reason through and rationalize things, whereas she, Salver, goes on her gut. And it's important to do both at different times. And often, Harry and Gail can't see the forest for the trees. And that's sort of the function that, in this regard, Salver fulfills. You don't know me, but I know you. Your second foundation doesn't stand a chance if we don't get this ship off planet right now. You're in the mainframe. Clear our avionics fault. Help us. That set is a spectacular set, but I ended up hating that set so much, (laughs) as I'm sure you did as well, because first of all, the bridge gimbaled, so it could go left and right and up and down and... Sometimes our cameramen literally needed to be strapped in or else, Mm. you know, they would go, you know, rolling around. You guys were rolling around. Mm -hmm. And then we also had these big LED screens that were playing in in real time a loop of this wave outside the windows or or the swells. And I don't know about you, but I got incredibly seasick. I also, I, I was directing the episode as well. And it was so hard to communicate often if you were outside um, on the rest of the stage, that often it was just easier to strap in next to the cameraman and be able to communicate to you guys in this sort of rolling bridge. And we filmed that over like three or four days. 
Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was a long process filming that scene. And there's this, the stuff that's on the hull of the ship when she gets up and she has to clear some coral. And what you see on the screen is very much what it felt like. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, there's rain pelting me. There's wind machine. It's dark. I can't see. It's so, so immersive. And uh, it, to be honest, it's not that difficult to, to, to struggle when you're, when you're giving it all for free. It's amazing. Right. Leah, you come from a, a, a theater and stage background. What is that mm. like being suddenly surrounded by all this tech and green screens and all that stuff? Oh, it's quite amazing. The things that these people are able to do with, you know, a bit of wood and some paint, firstly, is incredible. I feel like I've walked on spaceships. I feel like I've been in a, in a storm on a planet covered in water. It really, it, it's hard to separate reality from a scene when you're on those sets. And, you know, sets like the Gimbal set, which is the Beggar's Lament, it feels so, so immersive because you, you literally have to hold on or you're going to fall over. You know, yeah. and it's quite incredible to stand there and watch it. I remember when we first saw that set, uh, myself, Jared, and Lou were watching them turn it on and demonstrate it to us. And we were like, "Sorry, you're gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna go in there." That's, <laughs> oh, right. We're, we were all watching it. Kind of, we all went a bit pale. And okay, right, we're gonna spend days on end in that. Okay, great. <laughs> You know, I looked at Jared and I kind of was like, you ready for this, mate? He was like, oh, God, I don't know. It's going to be stuck in there with us too. And also, we were on a stage and it was pretty hot and there wasn't a lot of ventilation. And so it got pretty mm. ripe in there pretty quickly. It did. Oh, the, the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood, baby. <laughs> uh, let's dive into Harry and psychohistory and the developments with the foundation and his plan, we finally learn in this episode why Harry is so mad. There was supposed to be the second foundation that was uh, going to be launched. It was going to be part of his role in this. But now, because he's been locked in the Prime Radiant, that hasn't happened. And we learn that Harry always kind of had baked into his plan the eventuality that the first foundation, the foundation that everybody knows about, would become corrupted, would become in, in a large way like the empire that it's seeking to supplant and that the empire would eventually attack it. This is pretty huge news, I would imagine, for everybody in that room. And no wonder Harry is so manic about this. Yeah. And, and that idea was something that was baked into Asimov's original yeah. stories. And that was one of the brilliant notions that Asimov came up with. You know, the first book is called Foundation, right? This, and then the second book is called Foundation and Empire, of which, you know, some of the second season was based on as well. And this whole thing that everyone is working towards or that, that empire is fighting against isn't even the big thing. Yeah, you know, that yeah. they're, you know, and, and the mm -hmm. thing that Salver spent her whole life up till going in, into cryosleep defending and being the warden of and protecting, they're meant to draw the fire from empire. They're meant to be, you know, the distraction while the right. real foundation <laughs> operates in secrecy. And so it's just a great rug pull uh, for the audience. You're talking like Terminus is the enemy. It isn't, not yet. But power corrupts and a foundation left unchecked becomes empire all over again. They are good people. You do not know them like I do. Everyone you knew there is dead. Nice. We lose, it's bad. We win, it's bad. I can't, I can't accept that. Leah, is, is Salvor even, is she even processing that, that this 
organization that she really was uh, dedicated her life to. Everyone she knew was involved in it and that she loved was involved in it. And it really was just this kind of, you know, red herring to draw the empire off. Is, is she even grappling with that information yet? Or is she just like, you know, so many things are running by her at this moment? You know, at the end of season one, she has this chat with her mom yeah. who, who says that, you know, Harry kind of just used us as pawns and, you know, mm. pulled the rug from under us. And we were just here to just create people, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I feel like she's had this news before. That foundation perhaps doesn't serve the purpose that everybody thought it did. And yes, there's definitely some grappling with the idea that there's going, there should be another one or there was a plan to have another one. Um, she knows that foundation is very complicated mm. and that there's a bigger plan. And so I reckon hearing that there's a second one is big news, but kind of not a surprise mm, in a way right. to her particularly because she's kind of heard that news before Yeah, in a way. And she's always felt like an outsider and always, and felt, always felt like, like she outsider, was yeah. meant for a different purpose and that mm -hmm. leaving the planet was part of that purpose. So I think in that regard, she's surprised, but not as surprised as perhaps anyone else involved in Foundation to hear that news. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that after finding out, you know, a couple of nights later, she'll be in bed and she'll go, oh, you know what? It's actually quite gratifying to know that the reason why I left, that there is something bigger than myself that I'm part of. The relationship in terms of the powers that Gail and Salvor seem to have uh, is, is really interesting in that Salvor is always gazing backwards and Gail is gazing forwards. Tell us about that relationship and how you understand it. Well, it's interesting in in this episode, I feel like Gail and Salvor, forgetting about their powers as they are, they either are looking forward or they're looking backwards. And sometimes Gail spends a lot of time looking backwards and reminiscing and kind of, you know, remembering the, the past. And Salvor sometimes, when she's doing that, is going, no, look forwards. And then they swap. And it's really interesting when you as an actor to kind of look at a scene and go, okay, which way am I looking right now? And it's a fun little game that we were able to play that I played for sure. Mm. We played around with that a lot. Like if you could take the two halves that these characters represent, it would it would make a whole to a certain mm. extent. In, in some ways in this season, and it starts with this episode, Salver ends up mothering Gail, mm. yeah. which is this sort of really lovely, strange dynamic that that unfolds. I felt stronger since Salvo arrived. Maybe it's her abilities and amplifying effect. Abilities? You feel the future as well? Uh, not the future, the past. Just moments Gail and Raish experience. Raish? Uh, via the seed bank. Um, if Salvo can access my memories, then maybe my premonitions are the same thing in reverse. Memories my future self has experienced. Show me the turning point where chaos seems to consume everything. David, I remember when we were recording season one of the pod, you mentioned how excited you were to get to the to the mule, such an important character in the Foundation novels. And here we have glimpsed him for the first time. What can you tell us about him? Well, it's something that Harry Seldon in psychohistory can't predict, and, and, and they don't know how to grapple with it. And so it kind of T-bones the plan. It's funny, this is this is sort of a a bad slightly self-referential analogy, but I, I think the mule is to psychohistory what Bane was to Batman <laughs> in The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> like just, you know, this brute 
force thing that comes in yeah. and, and fucks everything up. And and that it doesn't matter how much you train and and it and it just it's it's just completely outside of your skill set and forces you to adapt or die. Why can't psychohistory predict the mule? First of all, the mule has psychic or psionic powers. He's more than human. He represents something that evolution hasn't spit out yet. So He's a character that in and of himself is not dissimilar to Mm. Gale, who can also see the future. So a character that can see the future is is a dangerous character. But what does it mean if you see this vision of the future that you're now trying to forestall, this, this confrontation with this mule character, but as you're sort of propelling towards this destiny, the daughter that you just met may end up dying at the hands of this character. So in in fulfilling your galactic destiny, you're going to cause the death of your own daughter. And so myself uh, and the other writers, we always like to put as much downward pressure on our characters as humanly possible. Leah, how does how does Salvor even receive that news that in the future, over a hundred years from now, she will die at the hands of this warlord? Is that even something that you know, her as a, as the character could possibly wrap her arms around? I think, you know, in that last scene, we see her take that in. And I always like to think of it as she's about to kind of say something, but she can't say anything because there is nothing mm. to say. How do you respond to that? Especially knowing that Gail has a kind of surety about it. Yeah. And you you can't argue against it. You can't say, uh, tell me more. <laughs> that's it. That's the information. Um, you know, and I, I, I'd like to think that in those last little moments of that, of this episode, that you see the confusion and that you see the, how big it is, how big a piece of news it is. And you can see that it's going to be there for the rest of the season, <laughs> that, that that information is going to have a big impact on their relationship and and the, the the story and their journey that they go on, because it will. You know what's crazy too is when we were originally, we call it breaking the season, the vision that she saw was going to happen in episode 10. It was oh, wow. one of the last moments in the season. And then when we'd finished the first draft of this episode, I said, oh, I've got a crazy idea. What if we, what if we move this forward and then have this hanging over the characters for the whole season? And so- it's just interesting structurally when something like that occurs to you and it completely changes the dynamic of it. And we thought it would be interesting that in a show that's about trying to predict the future, right? And what Harry Seldon does is he predicts this big future with regards to empire or foundation and people have to live with it. People have to live with the idea that this is a certainty and that this is going to happen and what does it do? And 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 then we thought, oh, it would be interesting to then take that dilemma and bring it down to this really personal level with Gail, who's an oracle, who's then given a very specific personal premonition about her own daughter. But like I said, that we had always intended that to play in kind of like the last act of the season and then had this epiphany and changed it. Leah, do you think Salvor will be concerned by the fact that she'll be dead in 150 years? When I was watching this, I was like, great news. If I hear this, the headline that I'm coming walking away with is I will live at least 150 years. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> but with knowing that, you know, cryosleep and that she's just slept through 138 years anyway, uh, 
I think maybe it could shake her up a little bit. So it's, it'll be interesting to see where she goes in the next episodes and how she kind of battles with that knowledge. Right. Because, it, yes, it's 152 years from now, but, you know, if she goes into cryosleep in episode three and then wakes up 152 mm. years later in in what is her mm-hmm. tomorrow, then it could be pretty pretty damn soon. We exactly, just don't yeah. know yet. Who knows? Who knows? And that, I think that's the thing is that nobody knows really what it means. So it's uh, it's just a big question, another big question for Salvo. Asimov's books, I think it's fair to say this, are quite critical of power in general and also, and religion yes. specifically, as well as other forms of power. And this show and this episode does a great job of of really humanizing Polly and Constant, these missionaries, and, and exploring why they have faith and the different mm. shapes that it takes. You can talk about like that that contrast between Asimov's takes on power and, and religion and then uh, the, the way you wanted to go with presenting this kind of religious message that the foundation is presenting to people. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the religious phase is something that is is in Asimov's stories. And I always loved that, that they were using technology in the hinterlands and that they were using this advanced technology as if it were magic. And yeah. they were using this to kind of wow the masses and I, I always thought of these clerics almost like some of the people in in Europe during the Renaissance and whatnot that were selling papal indulgences. Some of mm-hmm. them had like this sort of medicine man <laughs> yeah. type shows where they would have miracles and yeah. then they would sell you these papal indulgences and, and they would entertain people with these kind of um, mystery plays and they would go around in these covered wagons and whatnot. And that's how we talked about the clerics of the foundation going about these worlds. And so there are certainly people in the Asimov books and the Asimov stories that are ardent believers of the plan, but almost all the characters that are employing religion as a way of converting the masses, they themselves are quite cynical about it. So I did think it would be interesting. The character of Constant is not a character that appears in the book. And because we like to show both sides of things, I thought it'd be interesting to have a second, or I guess at this point, third or fourth generation character who grew up with the Church of the Galactic Spirit existing well before she was born. And even though she's in on the joke, she's still a believer. That's why we named her character Constant. That's one of the things that we try really hard on the show to do is to sort of flip things on its head and Mm. look at things from a different perspective. Let's go to Trantor, where uh, you know, Queen Sarath is visiting and getting to know her uh, future husband and his two brothers. And she is dropping a lot of knowledge, a lot of tea about things that she knows that she should know. She knows about the assassination. She seems to know about the corruption of the genetic line. Should we assume that this is kind of, you know, at least in... in leadership circles across the galaxy. Is this news starting to spread? Is this stuff starting to get out there? I think a little bit, and it's it's troublesome that they know about it. And she's really poking the bear here. Yeah. I mean, she's been she's brought- She's brave. She's yes, quite very brave. very brave. Exactly. And you can see her enjoiner, Rue, she just keeps raising her eyebrows at all these sort of, you know, grenades that she's tossing across the, the table. As Dusk and Demerzel and Dawn also are- sort of similarly alarmed. But then we thought it was interesting to have Day. He just kind of refuses to be threatened by it. And and I remember as written the scene 
was meant to have Day be more annoyed by what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And Lee, who's such a wonderfully gifted performer, said, what if I'm almost amused by it? I mean, I'm the person <laughs> who should be threatened by it the most, but it's, it's, a, it's a show of strength. But what of you, Brother Dawn? You'll lose a kingdom. But gain a sister? Is that what I'll be? <laughs> and won't I be accomplishing what yesterday's attempt sought to do but could not? A baby is born and all the other branches fall off the tree. Assassination by procreation. <laughs> uh, we're not branches. It's all one tree. We're, we're the, the same, same man. But you would never become day. Your very reason for existing would be erased. <laughs> She's going to talk her way out of marriage. Not at all. She's displaying a fine mind for analysis. There's a really interesting, I guess you would call it, this kind of strange flirtation with Dawn. And then she asks him, you know, seems like you've got a lot to lose in this situation in which the genetic dynasty is getting mothballed, uh, your feelings. And he says, oh, yeah, I'm fine with it. I gain a sister. That's great. It, uh, he, he must feel the threat, though. Oh, yeah, totally. But what's he going to do, yeah, right? Yeah, what's he going to do? He's in this, mm. I mean, there's also a moment when Sarath is sort of lobbing these hand grenades. And I remember talking about this to Terry and to Cassian, who play Dusk and Dawn, respectively, that on, on one hand, they're raising their eyebrows at what she's saying, but on the other hand, they're hoping, uh, as, as Rue says, that she'll talk herself out of a marriage. It'll be so outrageous that they'll have to call the whole thing off, and so maybe they don't have to sabotage it. But then the other question, of course, is who ordered the assassination? You know, right. was it Dawn? Was it Dusk? Was it Sarath and Rue? There's... No shortage of suspects. Leah, I, I think about, you know, Salvor's upbringing on Terminus and what her, her relationship to galactic politics might be like. What does she think about empire? This reminds me of um, a scene in season one where Salvor's walking down a corridor and there are classrooms and we pass a classroom. We hear a little snippet about I think it's the empire, something about the empire. And so, you know, she would have learned about them at school. Mm -hmm. And whatever foundation, I think whatever foundation thinks about empire is what she thinks about empire. Because that's just the way the world works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and finally, I want to end on a, a name that I think is familiar to book readers, uh, Hober Mallow, quite a entrance for the name, at least, over the ashes of uh, Warden Fount. Uh, what should we expect with Ober Mallow? Hober is one of my favorite Asimovian characters. I just, I don't want to say too much because you're going to meet him next episode. But again, we've said in season one that psychohistory predicts these sort of mass movements of society, right? These broad swaths, these broad actions. That they we've said again and again and again that they can't predict any, you know, single individual's personal path. And so we thought it would be really wonderful then to have them throw out this name, Hober Mallow, who's <laughs> who's a person that exists and how would the vault even know about, you know, this person and why in God's name it seems to just defy everything that the vault in psychohistory is about. And of course, that's one of the mysteries that we'll, we'll get into. I don't want to say too much other than when you meet Hober, he seems like a pretty odd choice to have his name emblazoned on the vault. 
why in God's name, having, you know, predicted this person, they would ask for this particular guy. And the answer to that, as we'll come to no surprise to the listeners of this podcast, or perhaps yourself, is that will probably happen at the tail end of the season. <laughs> well, this is a, this is a very tantalizing bit to end on. Uh, let's go once again to our uh, favorite segment, Building the Foundation, our light speed round of questions about the world of foundations. Show you what. You want to build a foundation. You're supposed to be the one. Why do you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know nothing! Uh, the anti-hangover medicine that Polly takes, how does it work? <laughs> um, it's a instant Ipecac. You know, it, it just... <laughs> You've seen the Ipecac challenge, you yeah. know, on the uh, on the web. Yes, that's, that's basically what it does. It just makes you well. It makes you puke everything up, but also everything comes out the other end as well. It's just like boom. I did not know that everything came out the other end as well. That's oh, yeah. unpleasant because yeah. she says trousers and she throws them on, you know, as well. Oh he's, yeah, he's no, basically yeah, just okay, shat himself. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, speaking of Polly, and also. Gail and Salvor, by extension, it seems like space flight allows people to live pretty long. What's the average lifespan of a person in the galaxy? If you're factoring in like cryogenic preservation or just, <laughs> you know, I, I had figured based on current technology that mm -hmm. by the time we're in foundation, people could live like 150, 160 years or something like that. And so someone who's 150 would present as someone who's like a hundred and someone who's 90 would present as someone who's 60 or something oh, like wow. that. Mm -hmm. Just based on where current yeah. medical technology is going. So Polly's about 148 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and he hasn't had like, you know. He looks pretty good for 138, I'd say. Yeah, he hasn't had any fillers put in. He hasn't had any <laughs> Botox. 148 is the new 58. Yeah, um, yeah. The foundation's auras are they? They're based on the empire's auras. They, they basically are the empire's auras. Uh -huh. I mean, it, you'll see them later on, but that's pretty interesting because we make a big deal of that in season one, and they're relatively commonplace for the foundationers in season two. Uh, and then finally, I, I apologize in advance. But seeing Warden Fount burst into flame, and I have to ask, what is in the vault? Who is in the vault? And what is the uh, emotional state of this person in the vault right now? Because he seems kind of angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will say, for people that watch the whole season and listen to these podcasts in terms of what is in the vault, it will be very interesting if they think back to this particular episode. Uh, of the podcast, oh! because the answer to what's in the vault to a certain extent, and I think Leah knows what I'm talking about, we sort of talked about it during uh, oh. this podcast. Oh! That is good writing. <laughs> well, uh, David and Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We'll be back next week covering episode three with Lula Bell, who plays Gail Dornick. And thanks for all of you for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. 
Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. I walk behind you. To walk beside you for one step would fulfill every dream. <laughs>